Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Christina Roseanne, Associate Professor of Geography and Urban Studies at Temple University, where she is also an affiliated faculty member in Global Studies, the Master of Public Policy Program, Latin American Studies, and the Center for Sustainable Communities. Roseanne's first book, Governing the Fragmented Metropolis, Planning for Regional Sustainability, examines metropolitan governance and land use planning in Boston, Denver, and Portland, Oregon. Roseanne's second book, Growing a Sustainable City, The Question of Urban Agriculture, co-authored with Hamel Purcell, was published in 2017. Roseanne's forthcoming book, Reimagining Sustainable Cities, Strategies for Designing Greener, Healthier, More Equitable Communities is co-authored with Stephen Wheeler and will be published by the University of California Press in December 2021. On October 27, 2021, Roseanne will give a virtual talk, Reimagining Cities to be Sustainable, Healthy, Resilient, Green, and Equitable, as this year's Criticos Lecturer in the Humanities and as part of the Oregon Humanities Center's Imagining Futures Lecture Series. Thanks, Tina, so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you for the invitation. Um, tell us first a little bit about your background and what led to your interest in geography and urban planning. Yeah, so I um, grew up in Brooklyn in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. Um, uh, my parents were actually planners. They met at the city planning office in New York. So. Um, I guess I was always surrounded by planners. I never thought of it as a career or anything, but I grew up, my dad's an architect. Um, so I always grew up kind of understanding cities and, you know, just visually really loving cities. I mean, I also had the pleasure of like growing up, I grew up in Park Slope and, uh, you know, it was just a beautiful place. Um, and I've always kind of wished that urban experience for everyone. And I also have the pleasure of sort of being gentrified out of that um, neighborhood. And um, I live in Philly now. So it's been, you know, I can, you can, I can just, I feel like as someone who grew up in Park Slope in, in the in the 70s and 80s, you know, you see the train of gentrification coming for you and you see all the sort of benefits of the urban experience and the challenges, but I've just always really loved cities. Um, and it was after it went in college, we actually didn't have an urban planning program. So I was a history undergrad major. And I looked, I wrote an undergrad thesis on public housing and thinking about race. And, and I became um, really interested in kind of why cities were the way they were. And, and, and you know, I, I also sort of understand, understood as a kid how you know, the sort of level of injustice at the, in the city and opportunities. Um, you know, I, I had opportunities as a white kid and I, it was very clear in Brooklyn in that era that if you were a person of color, you did not have those opportunities. So I was always trying to understand the sort of suburban, urban history. How did we get here? Um, and then that really led me to urban planning. I love the idea of like fixing stuff you know, and thinking creatively, working together with people on that. Um, and so I ended up um, getting a master's and a planning degree. And they really had to kind of kick me out of graduate school because I just loved it so much. Um, and that's probably why I'm a professor now. So let's talk a little bit about your first book, Governing the Fragmented Metropolis. Um, that book studies Boston, Denver, and Portland. Why did you choose those three cities as your case studies? Um, 
I had a fellowship um, over the summer to work with the Rappaport Institute. They hooked me up with the um, public policy fellowship where I worked at the Metropolitan Area Planning Council in Boston. And um, my advisor, Larry Suskind, and I had also been doing a lot of um, writing about sort of the tragedy of local land use planning in the Boston region. And we, we wrote a paper together called um, Planning in the Doldrums, you know, thinking about the sort of all these planners stuck um, that, you know, stuck in their kind of small jurisdictions, not being able to kind of think more strategically and regionally and fighting with each other for malls and, um, you know, fighting about, you know, just things that didn't seem like smart planning to me. So, you know, that experience of working at MAPC and seeing this agency try to try to kind of coordinate all of this work, but not have a lot of power led me to wonder, well, you know, does power matter in the structure of these organizations? And then, so the framework that I developed was thinking about, could you look at three different cities, uh, three different regions that had different levels of power in the metropolitan planning governance structure. So Boston was the example of, okay, it's, it, it's not the MPO, the Metropolitan Planning Organization. So it actually doesn't control all the transportation dollars, but it does have this convening power and a long history, but it's, it's also a very fragmented region. And then Denver I chose because there was a lot of hype about, um, you know, they, uh, the mile high compact and it's this voluntary regionalism everybody's going to get together and it was also the MPO for the region so I was thinking about um, you know what happens when you have money for transportation does that get people to the table differently and do they make different kinds of decisions um, and kind of the hypothesis was yes if you had more power you're, if you have more money that's a type of power and you're going to be more effective. And then the Portland example was sort of the extreme. Um, I was actually really reluctant to even touch Portland because in the planning literature, Portland, anytime you mention Portland, people just kind of roll their eyes like, well, that's Portland. You know, it's just whiter, weirder, more liberal. But, you know, the, the combination in Portland is really interesting of like state power, um, elected power, the MPO power, um, you know, it, it's just so kind of what happens when you, when you kind of get this, uh, all the stuff you wanted to get and does it make your planning better, or more effective and what are the holes even there? So I wanted to understand the trajectory and that's really what that book looks at, like what, what changes as you move across and you start to have metropolitan planning agencies have more authority. So obviously we're in the state of Oregon. We, we all of us know Portland. So um, you just suggested that, you know, if Portland's the best, the best case scenario. Um, you mentioned that there were some limitations that you found there. So what are, what were some of the limitations about the Port, Portland Metro model that you discussed? Well, I think that this is less true now. Um, I think that that's, you know, that book, it was research a long time ago, but um, I still think that uh, there are certain things that regional governance has a really hard time getting at. Um, and so like it's often, even in Portland, 
affordable housing is going to be an issue, education issue, you know, so like there's still sort of what I call the third rails of regional planning, even in places that um, do kind of have a lot of the ingredients of being a strong regional um, arrangement. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the other thing in Portland that I, I also kind of wanted to do in the book was like dispel the myth that like everything was perfect in Portland um, and that everyone loved each other in Portland because I think that myth guides people to believe that you can never get Portland. And I think what I saw in Portland was like, actually a lot of the things that were kind of boring, like uh, parking regulations and stuff like that, those things needed to be coordinated across the region. And you, and you could build kind of the capacity building could grow as you start to coordinate on smaller things. And then there's a lot of learning in the planning field that comes from planning matter, like having planning be something that is actually people are listening to and that there is some power of the regional planning authority is very different than an organization that's kind of like, well, come if you want to, you know, uh, which was, you know, when I worked at MAPC, if you looked at the list on the website of all the representatives, many of them were just vacant spots, you know, people didn't, weren't coming. So what I kind of took away from that was like, you know, life's kind of complicated. We don't have time for extra stuff that doesn't matter. So if, if regional governance really matters, we needed to like have authority <laughs> so that people come to the meeting. And then through that authority, what you what I thought was great about Portland was like, they knew each other, all the planners talked with each other and they could have the sort of deliberative processes that we had talked about, um, you know, that we sort of dream about in planning. They had these processes going on because planning mattered, they actually had to engage with each other. And, you know, I, I think that is something that's sort of under discussed in the planning literature. You, I mean, from the work that you've done, have you come up with any solutions to that problem of helping cities think that planning matters in the way that you found that Portland seemed to think that? Um, I mean, I think one thing is to try to build a shared, a shared understanding of the problem. Like, and so my, I have a friend, we, we joke about the solution shed, right? So it's like a problem shed and a solution shed. So um, I think climate is something that kind of like, breaks it and it really breaks the boundaries on the sort of jurisdictional thinking about, you know, this is my property and my community and my school district. And, you know, it, it's also your water system that's being polluted and your flooding for the region and air pollution. And so, you know, how do you make sure that the region is sustainable? I think that's obviously going to be a much larger critical regional conversation. I think also a lot of regions you're gonna be having to have kind of uncomfortable conversations about people need to move out of places. Um, and so how do you do that equitably? Um, and then you're gonna also have, you're also gonna have some tensions where some communities might be wanting to protect themselves um, and they might have the resources to do that um, from climate change and other communities might not. So how do we, how do we kind of talk about this resilience planning at a regional scale? I also think that there are some basic, um, you know, like things that already exist and we should just figure out how to link them together. So like, you know, if you're the MPO for the region, okay, 
you want your transportation improvement money. What are you going to, what are you going to do that meets the regional goal that bumps your project up? You know, so, it, so in, in Denver, there was the connection between the Metro vision plan and signing the mile high, high compact and your tip money. So there, they, you know, the more good things you did the, as a community that we're, we're meeting the regional goal, the more points you were getting towards your tip money. So, I mean, I think there is like a fair amount of shared interest that we need to understand that, you know, we're all in this together and how do we leverage things that are there already? Um, the other thing is that a lot of this is like economies of scale. Like it does not make sense for every city to be negotiating their own energy contracts or police purchasing or all this stuff. So there, you know, even high schools, like there's some regional work that can be done at the smaller scale um, that that's really important and that builds trust. And, and then another piece, and this, they did this in, in Boston is like, how does MAPC convince local authorities that it is useful? Well, one of the ways it does that is it writes a lot of reports and does data studies. And then they go to the state house and they say, hey, by the way, all these communities in the Boston region really need this type of program and this type of funding. And the more that MAPC can demonstrate that they're bringing resources down to the local community and that it's like benefits communities to participate, the more you can build this structure, even though it's not there to begin with. So I know one of the tools that you think are, is useful in convincing communities that there are these benefits in thinking regionally is mapping. So say a little bit about how, how you understand mapping to be helpful in these efforts. Well, I, I mean, to me, some of the, those regional equity maps, if, if you look at that map and it doesn't shock you that like, depending on where you live, you're gonna die 20 years earlier or your exposure to air pollution is, then, you know, I'm not sure what to do with you if that map doesn't tell you something, right? Because, so I think what, you, what the mapping allows you to do is it allows you to ask questions that it, it's really saying, you know, why is it that if you live in the suburbs of Philadelphia, you and your children get to live 20 extra years than if you live downtown and you're African-American and, you know, and you can add on these variables to really understand the nuances. Now, I, I think that mapping, and this is some work that I'm doing now, I think that mapping also um, can't go that final step. And I think there's a lot about storytelling and I mean, a lot of research has been about the fact that people engage with human stories rather than this. We, we, we kind of get immune to all these maps of inequality. But if we hear stories about, you know, a kid who goes to a school with asbestos and has asthma and, you know, worries about gun violence at home and, you know, doesn't have opportunities to go to college while some other kid has, you know, just lives over the border and is a different race, gets all access to all of these other opportunities. The more that we can kind of humanize the story, I think that there, there is a demand for change. And so I think mapping can be a really good tool. Mapping plus storytelling and activism is really important to kind of get people to do things differently. 
So you've started to tell us a little bit about your your experiences in Philadelphia and your work in Philadelphia. I know that you've been engaged in Philadelphia's planning for green infrastructure. So first, how do you define that, what green infrastructure is? Yeah, I teach an urban environment and a sustainable cities course. And it's funny because green infrastructure ten, it's, tends to be typically associated with stormwater um, management. And so it's really the sort of vegetative practice, traditionally vegetative practices that um, kind of store stormwater um, that it kind of acts like a sponge, right? So if it rains, um, if it rains on a on a parking lot, it's going to run off super quickly, and the water is going to end up in the uh, sewer system or the river really quickly. But if you had a park there that was pervious, the 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 park would act like a sponge and would do the sort of natural processes of what's called green stormwater infrastructure. Um, so that's so the idea is, you know, across the city, how can we add these features into the city through parks. Um, you could have rain barrels that capture stormwater off your roof. You could have rain gardens. Um, you could figure out uh, pervious basketball courts or figuring out how to retrofit playgrounds so they're more pervious. Um, and you know there, there are all these different types of practices um, that if you kind of rethink the city as and really bringing it back to being a part of an ecological cycle that's um, the stormwater green stormwater allows you to to do that um, with those types of investments so as part of your work with the green infrastructure you and a researcher colleague have created an equity index tell us a little bit about that index and, and why is that a good thing and how does it help you with this effort sure um so this work um really started in like 2013, the Philadelphia Water Department, um, you know, they entered into an agreement with the EPA to argue that, you know, we're never going to meet our um, combined sewer overflow requirements of um, upgrading the infrastructure to like meet the water requirements, unless we think about the problem differently. And actually, that's something I really love about Philadelphia is like there was this really innovative thinking like hey we could use the city to capture this rainwater and we don't have to just invest in all this gray storm water and so to do that they argued that um, they did this analysis that was all about triple bottom lines so like every they every playground would provide certain benefits um, or every green infrastructure uh, would provide benefits and when they pitched the program they wrote this report where they tried to argue that you know there were billions of dollars of benefits that would come from these investments and so megan heckard and i um we started thinking about well if there are billions of dollars of investments there are certain neighborhoods that really really need that investment more than others and we sort of went back to the rawlsian view of planning or like where we imagined you know and this gets back to that same question of the mapping and the inequities like you know, does downtown Rittenhouse need more investment? Or should we be thinking about the problem as a needs-based problem? So could we identify certain factors that are through the literature related to green storm infrastructure? So, um, you know, for instance, like vacant lots or, you know, your access to tree canopy or are you an environmental justice community or are you 
we previously redlined or so we started brainstorming and we worked with some community members we created this advisory council to help us um, to think about you know what were the factors that you should be taking into consideration when thinking about who gets these investments. Um, and I think that's really important. And we actually have an NSF grant to sort of build on this, to think more about um, climate and sort of dealing with urban heat and flooding. But, you know, how do we allow residents to make sure that what's important to them gets into the investment decisions? And I think particularly with the Biden administration thinking, you know, every, everybody's like so excited about infrastructure, which I am fantastic. I, I'm so excited about it. Um, but, you know, infrastructure is political and, you, and it is about equity and it's about social justice. So we need to figure out mechanisms to engage residents in the sort of budgeting and um, investments in certain communities. So the, the, the Green Infrastructure Equity Index allows you to look across the city and then say, well, you know, here's a neighborhood that lacks park access, that has like a lot of young people, old people, it has a lot of renters, it doesn't have, um, you know, it, it has like high air pollution. And this neighborhood is actually where we might want to target investment. But we also need to um, work with community members to make sure that we're not like gentrifying people out of those neighborhoods. So I think the tool is really exciting if you can get community input and you can get um, kind of change the conversation about these about you know what does equity really look like and what does it mean. So I mean it's been fun for me because you know when we did that in 2015, people were like, what are you talking about equity? And we used to always show these pictures of why equity was different than equality. And I feel like today, you know, people are pretty clear on what that is, so. So your second book, uh, Growing a Sustainable City is focused on the question of urban agriculture. Uh, why is urban agriculture a question? That's a good question. Um, so, that book came out of, um, I had lived, I, I had lived in, in Boston. I moved to Philly and um, there were 40,000 vacant lots um, in the city. And I, just that number to me was shocking. Uh, you know, I had grown up in Brooklyn. I'd done my graduate, I, I graduate studies in Boston. So, you know, these were cities that were on the up. And it was like, when I got to Philly, uh, you know, kids in vacant lots. And um, it was just, I mean, it, part of it was cool because you were like, wow, you, there's so much you can actually do here. It seemed like a little bit like the wild west, like people just doing random things around the city. And all of my undergrads kept talking to me about, oh, you know, I don't really, I don't really want to work for the city or do anything. What I'm going to do is become an urban farmer. And I started wondering like, you know, what, what is the role of urban ag, you know, and what is it, what role is it playing this post-industrial city that has um, had all this redlining that, you know, racist past, highly dysfunctional systems of governance, um, you know, so like, to me, there is a question about like, 
there's this thing that everyone's so excited about, but what does it do? And how does it interact with larger conversations about the urban growth machine and building a sustainable city? So that was really the kind of exploration that we did in that book. We looked historically, and then we also interviewed a lot of people who were really active in gardening at the time. And even, even that too is like an older book at this point. But, you know, I thought the thing that was really eye-opening to me was like, um, how deeply dysfunctional the land policies in the city were and how they were not, there wasn't any strategic thinking about um, kind of using the 40,000 lots, vacant lots for greening, farming, schools, affordable housing, climate, you know, so, and anyway, so, um, I think there are a lot of questions about urban agriculture, but I think the the sort of end question is like, how does it fit into a larger story that we're telling? So one of the solutions that sometimes gets offered to this problem of building sustainable cities is technology. That's we can we can technologically get out of this problem. What's your view of that approach? And you know, to what degree do you think technology is helpful in these efforts? Um, I mean, I, I, I like technology. Um, I don't think it solves everything, but I think, I think we do have the technology to solve a lot of problems, but you need to build, you need to build systems around that technology. And you also need to have real conversations about the equity impacts of the, you know, so for instance, like the, um, you know, everybody's solution is a, an electric car. Well, it's great. Um, you know, I live in a city, it's impossible to find a parking spot. Where do I charge it? You know, I also live in a city where, um, I don't know what the number is, but, you know, but a huge number of people don't have the money to ever buy a car, let alone an electric car. And there's also some serious costs of car ownership, you know, so do, is, is the solution an electric car and everybody gets an electric car? I mean, I, I don't think you want that kind of city because everyone's going to be sitting in their electric car in a huge traffic jam. And, you know, so that's, so it's, it seems to me the problem with a lot of the technology is, you know, everyone gets so excited about one solution that they run down that path when it's actually, it's a whole host of solutions that all need to go together. And I feel like that's actually the same story that I had in the urban ag book is like, Everybody thinks urban ag is the solution, but it's a piece. And, um, you know, I'm all for electric cars. I think we need to figure out electric buses and like, let's not forget, forget public transit, you know? So I don't, um, there are a lot of exciting things. I think we need to not just let um, these kind of technology disruptors set the terms of it, I think as planners, we need to like get out in front of this, you know, before the Ubers and the Lyfts of the world gut the um, public transit, you know, we need to figure out how to, how to like build these things together and be a lot more savvy about using technology to meet the social justice and equity goals. So everything that you've been saying just now and throughout the talk has been about this approach that you take in your research, which we could call intersectional. And you've just sort of been giving us a sense of that. Say a little bit more about how you understand what an intersectional approach is 
and why it's such an important way of approaching the kind of uh, research and urban planning that you that you do. I, I it's interesting because I um, like if I look at myself, I sort of bounced around. You know, I have a book about governance of regional and that I have one about urban environment, urban agriculture, and then I've worked on green stormwater and then I'm, you know, really interested in housing and other things. And to me, I think what I found with this field of planning is everybody gets in their lane and then they have started having conversations in their lane and they don't realize that actually the lived experience of poverty is all of these things, right? And so like, if we want to actually go and try to solve them, we actually have to break through those silos and think about how to coordinate. So, I mean, I think a prime example of that is this conversation about green, uh, green gentrification. So, you know, I go to the water department and give a talk about equity and we say, well, you know, we really want you to do this investment, but we want you to be careful about the problem of green um, gentrification. And then the water department sort of pushes back and says, well, you know, but that's housing. And I'm saying, yeah, but that's planning. You got to get together with the housing people. If we know the academics are telling you, the data is telling you that these things are going in tandem. So you got to plan these in tandem. I think the more that we can start sort of um, build those coalitions within government, the, the, you know, where people are thinking more intersectionally about both the problems and the solutions, I think that's with the climate we are, I mean, that's absolutely essential. So, you know, for me, I, it's, it's funny because I've always, I was always sort of embarrassed. I'm interested in a lot of stuff. Um, and now I'm realizing that's actually, you know, we all need to be interested in a lot of stuff. So Tina, um, we're coming to the end of our time. This will be my last question. So the talk that you're going to give at the U of O on the 27th of October is titled Reimagining Cities to be Sustainable, Healthy, Resilient, Green, and Equitable. That all sounds like a tall order. Do you think it's possible? Are you optimistic? You know, I am, I am on one hand deeply concerned. And I think that's one of the reasons that I've recently been sort of coming out of my shell and like doing more um, public engagements. Um, uh, I'm also, I am kind of optimistic that as a society, we realize how deeply flawed we are. And I feel like the COVID um, COVID kind of moment just sort of unve unveiled that for everyone. You know, people realized that, oh, she's got three kids at home or, you know, she, she can't go to work without childcare. You know, these are like essential um, things that like, you know, we, we needed people to see that we and and I think we still and I, I actually think we need to, to kind of keep the eye, keep our eyes on the fact that like the, I'm not you know like this climate emergency is 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 huge and we're not going to get out of it unless we all kind of commit to it. I think there's so much exciting kind of brain power and all these activist groups and um, you know thought leaders and politicians who are kind of wanting to make things happen. I think to me, the issue is kind of rethinking the problem, seeing the urgency, and then coordinating with different stakeholders to make sure we actually try to solve it. Because I think for so long, we're just 
um, well, that's the way it is. You know, people in the suburbs, well, they got good schools. People in the city, you know, that's just, you know, they don't, you know, oh, you live in the city. It's, uh, you're, you know, environmental justice, air pollution. And I think one of the things that I am always wondering is why, you know, why, you know, we should expect more. So just trying to push people to ask that question, you know, is this really the right way to do it? And, and I think there all these cracks of COVID and Black Lives Matter allow us to kind of start to have that conversation. I think if you come to my talk on the 27th, I'm not going to solve that for, for you at all. But I do want to try to get you to commit to recognizing there's a problem and working and using the tools that you have to think about how to align um, to get the greener, just society that we really need to get to. Thanks so much, Tina. That's a great way to end this interview. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and we're looking forward to your uh, talk on the 27th. Great. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Christina, Christina Roseanne, an associate professor of geography and urban studies at Temple University. On October 27th, 2021, Roseanne will give a virtual talk, Reimagining Cities to be Sustainable, Healthy, Resilient, Green, and Equitable, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2021-22 Criticos Lecture in the Humanities. Thanks so much for watching.